Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. Welcome to this week's show. Got a great show for you this week. We're going to be doing a number of different things, including an extended Q&A. As we start to get into the holiday season, there's a lot of new technology coming out and a lot of stuff to talk about. Send us your questions and your comments, 503-503-766-6264. One user-friendly on Facebook, one user-friendly on Twitter. We get your questions, and that's how we program our show. Know someone who's seeking active retirement living, assisted living, or memory care? Look no further than the Ackerley at Sherwood. It's more than retirement. It's five-star fun. Please call 503-217-2345 for more details. So what's in the news? Google may be forced to sell Chrome and other assets. Yeah, so what this is, is it's relating to an antitrust situation. There's been an investigation on some of the bigger media companies for a number of years now, both in the United States and in the European Union and other places too, where they're saying that big tech is simply getting too big. So one of the things that's being looked at here, good, bad, or otherwise, is that Google may be forced to sell their Chrome browser and other assets. The other assets specifically refer to the advertising components of their company. And, um, you know, it's going to be very interesting. It's from one standpoint, it's nice to have all this stuff integrated. But from another standpoint, I can kind of see where it's like the old AT&T, where if you own the phone, the phone line, the service and everything else, there's no choice in the matter. That could be a problem. So are they doing that to others? Like like, uh, Microsoft? Yeah, Google's not the only one listed in the antitrust complaint also is Apple, Amazon, Facebook, the big names. So it's not just Google that's being looked at, but it is Google where they've actually made some kind of a recommendation here. So we'll see what happens with the other ones. iPhone 12 does not include charger or earbuds. So Jeremy, what do you think about that? Are we being environmentally good because everybody already has a charger or are they being cheap? Well, that depends (laughs) on whether or not cheap. Have they changed the charger again? Did so, they change the port again? The port is going to be USB-C. Okay. Uh, they are dropping the old uh, proprietary technology that they were using. Right. Part of it's because the EU is requiring cross-compatibility with chargers because of the waste that it's been generating. So okay. from that standpoint, yeah, it is compliant with standard, but it is a change from what they were using before. Well, that means that people are going to have to go and buy them because nobody on an iPhone has a USB-C. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. And this and that just seems dumb. This doesn't but, surprise me because this is the same company that uh, sells a very expensive, in the tens of thousands of dollars, desktop, and then charges an additional $1,000 for the monitor stand and has a proprietary monitor stand. You can't just use any one. So the idea that they would separate this out does seem to be something Apple would, would do. Same thing with the earbuds. But, you know, there are two arguments for this. Now, on an Android phone, which has used the same charger now for many generations, Maybe you should do this. I don't know. Yeah. I didn't know that they did that with the stand. That's kind of cruddy. Yeah, it is, I think. (laughs) Okay. Comcast president gets booted from own LTE network during presentation. Yeah, this is an article, Jeremy, you brought. Okay. So uh, this is the Cable Expo, uh, Cable Tech Expo. Of course, everybody's been doing everything online. So this expo went online as well. And apparently during an interview with the cable body industry president, Tony Werner just disappeared. <laughs> okay. So for several <laughs> minutes, the, the, the president of the, of, N, of the cable body 
had to interview himself until uh, he came back and and immediately blamed somebody else. <laughs> well, of course, you know, I, I have been of the opinion doing these kind of presentations for a long time myself that something will always go wrong. You know, it's it's well, the, yeah. we've like got the, two problems that everybody's going online and they haven't been maintaining all of their networks and, and you know, lines and everything because not everybody's on satellite. Right. So we've got all these networks that haven't been maintained or upgraded. So, of course, you know, with doubling and tripling capacity, something's going to fail. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you push more on it, you're going to definitely have some problems. And cell phones still, do, they're a lot better than they used to be, but you still do have where it will drop out sometimes. Uh, in fact, I had that the other day on a, on a wired connection with somebody I was working with that they just disappeared. So like you say, I think it's a matter of capacity, coverage, and just sometimes the technology isn't 100%. Americans may not be able to use all features of the 5G iPhone. Yeah, so this is an interesting uh, scenario and something that we've talked about in the past. In my opinion, the current implementation of 5G, the way it's going, is a bit of a hot mess. And what I mean by that is there are different versions of 5G. Some devices support some, some support all, some don't. Uh, An example on this is the new Samsung 5G phones. There's one version that does what's called mid-band or wide-band, which is the faster speed. The other two are 5G, but they don't support all of the different versions of 5G. It's something that's super confusing and hasn't been completely standardized yet. And in other countries, they're rolling out the full network. And here in the United States, we're seeing what technically is 5G, but may not support all the capabilities of 5G. So Apple has waited, as we know, on even releasing a 5G phone until this year. And while their phone looks like from the specs that it will support everything, the networks it's on may not. So it's an issue where, you know, dealing with that. And one of the things that is a real, to me, is really problematic on this is setting expectations. If you're going out and buying $1,000 or more for a new phone and expecting it to be a lot faster and it isn't, or it is just a little bit and isn't working quite as advertised, well, not the fault of the phone, you might feel like you've been ripped off. You yeah. know, the same, the same thing goes for any kind of new technology or you're given a list of features and all of those features don't work. It's a problem. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what actually happens with all of this. But right now, 5G is not necessarily what you might expect it to be. And I think it's going to be a while until we see all of that get straightened out. So are you saying this is just happening weird in the U.S. or is it worldwide? Uh, it's it, Well, it's not just in the U.S., but it's also not worldwide. It depends on the country you're in. Some countries are rolling out the full wide 5G, which supports the high speed and all that kind of stuff. Some are not. And here in the United States, different places are doing different things. Different providers are doing different things. So it's very confusing. And uh, so it's not a problem that's just in the United States, and it's also not a problem necessarily with the device. But if you're going to buy a new 5G device, I think it's important to ask the seller, you you know, whether it's a cell phone provider or whoever you go through, to make absolutely sure that it will support all the different versions of 5G. So if the network changes in a year, you don't have $1,000 invested in a device that's not going to work the way you want it to. Okay. The problem with old code and old coders. Yeah. So I've been a programmer for 26 years now. Do I qualify as an old coder? Technically, yes. Well, I don't know. You're not really old, but you've been doing it uh, for an unusually long time. Do you do 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 Fortran or COBOL? Actually, I do work in both languages. 
Okay, well then, yes, you are an old coder. <laughs> <laughs> now well, that we have made that days. determination, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, you know, I'm glad to know that I'm officially over the hill. Um, <laughs> so I do have to say, this year I've also made some good money off projects, being able to do those languages. Yeah, that's the that's the thing is I remember NASA needed help with some of those older languages because their satellites and and older equipment still use those codes. Yeah, it's uh, and it's not just NASA. NASA's one, you know, and and there actually is an idea with something like NASA that's launched, you know, 25, 30 years ago that that device would run on an old language. Where we're seeing it a lot now, though, is in the financial industry, specifically the unemployment offices in various states. Their uh-huh. systems are old and out of date. They're written in COBOL, primarily COBOL, more than Fortran. And what's happening is, is they need to update these systems all of a sudden to do things like the stimulus payments and variations on what they would have normally done with unemployment. And they don't have programmers available, at least in the capacity that they need to, to be able to update this, what we in the industry would call spaghetti code. And um, what that means is, is you have a system that was designed in the 70s or 80s that over the years stuff has been added on to and changed and added on to and changed, but never gone back and rewritten correctly. So you end up with a situation with all that where there's multi-generational code, multi-generational coders involved. And to try to go in now and fix something like that, even if you know the language, can be very, very complicated and have all kinds of issues. So that's what we're referring to with this. Legacy code, updating it is in the billions of dollars every year for companies. So it's definitely something that is also making its appearance on financial radar as far as being able to cover costs and that type of thing. And the other problem you have with this isn't just necessarily the old idea of Fortran and COBOL and languages of that era. It's also the fact now that with web languages, things are changing. So to get a little bit technical on this, PHP, which is a language that's used for a lot of the web in a lot of different ways, has gone through its own generations. When I started with it, we were on PHP 3, so that does date me a little bit. And this year coming out is PHP 8. Well, applications written in PHP 3, 4, and now 5 won't necessarily work on the new version because there's enough difference in the language itself that it breaks old applications. So that's another thing where if you're dealing with the same language, and I'm picking on PHP, but this is happening across the board, where if you have a language that something was compliant with, it isn't necessarily going forward, and that's going to cost money to be able to update and keep with the standards. If you don't standardize, things like financial transactions, eventually the security is no longer supported. The encryption gets old. So you do need newer versions because of the hackers. So it's kind of one of those type of situations. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We've got a special extended Q&A section for you this week. And you might ask the question, how do I ask a question? Well, you already asked a question, but you can ask us another one. And the way you do that is you send it in. You can either give us a call, 503-766-6264, or go online, One User Friendly on Facebook and Twitter, or go to our website, userfriendlynation.com. What do we have this week? What is a good GPS tracker for moving? Yeah, so this is an interesting audience question, Gretchen. Thank you for submitting this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know you're going to get into this pretty soon, and I've been doing a little research on this to try to figure out what is really available out there, because I want to get a GPS tracker for my glasses, because I do believe I waste about 50% of my time looking for them. (laughs) So uh, there's there's actually a number of different options out there now, and it really comes down to what you're going to use it for. 
So as a for example, if you want to put the GPS tracker in your car, there's some specific pro- products that will plug into the port within the car that uh, it powers it and everything works. Verizon makes one for that. Uh, the best one, according to ratings, is something called the Venix Basic GPS Car Tracker Model TK373. And it looks like a device that goes in the um, diagnostic port that's under your dashboard, plugs into that, and uh, you can run it. You can order it off their website or Amazon. And then there's a number of other things out there, too. There's a thing called Tile, which is one that I've actually used before. It's a little thing that goes on your keys and your glasses and all that kind of thing. And uh, it's uh, pretty straightforward and easy to use, and it works pretty well for what it's meant. Now, here's one of the biggest differences between these trackers and one of the things you want to look at. The tile works within a 150-foot range of wherever it is, so you have to have your phone or Bluetooth device to be able to pick it up. So that's not really a true GPS tracker because a true GPS tracker will work anywhere. The con on the real ones is there's always, in most, at least in all cases that I've seen here, a monthly fee. And the monthly fee ranges from about $20 a month on up, so you have to sign up for service. But if you do that, they do work just about anywhere. A couple of other options. There's one that's uh, recommended for kids and the elderly called the Yipson Freedom. And it's one that goes on your keychain, also available from Amazon or the manufacturer's website. Uh, another one that's out there that you might consider is something called the Lodges Maddox Micro 420. And it's a little bit bigger device. Monthly service charge of $14.95, so it's one that's a little bit less, plus there's no contract required on that one. Requires a 4G network to work. So you've got some different options out there. It's worth checking into, but if it's a device you need, it's definitely something that's kind of come into its heyday. What is the Robinhood app? Robinhood app. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I'm, I'm having visions of Sherwood Forest, and, yeah. and, you know, archers. Oh, no, the of Sheriff things. of Nottingham. He's coming for me. Yes. <laughs> so what is it? Okay, now that we've had our moment, because we had to have it with that name. So what this is, is for day traders on the stock market. Oh. And generally speaking, when you trade, you have a, either a person that does it for you, or you use an online system like E-Trade or something like that. And in both cases, you pay a fee for your trades. Some are better than others. Some do things better than others. And there's relevancy for both having an actual trader and doing virtual trading or online trading. But what Robinhood app is, is it's something that's come in for people that doesn't charge fees. And it's definitely shaking things up a little bit because you don't have to pay the transaction charges, hence the name Robinhood. The money doesn't go to the bank. And um, that's the way that this is put together, but that's basically what it is. One of the downsides on the Robinhood app is that they've been having a number of security problems lately. It got hacked, and they haven't been very quick, frankly, to fix the vulnerabilities in it. And it's something where you are dealing with your money and that type of thing, so you just want to be careful, keep track of everything as you normally would do. But uh, it is definitely something that has a purpose, just something that I think is still coming into into the front line of things and being developed. Is it secure to get rid of an old smart speaker? So I invite everybody to check out our text Wednesday at TheAnswerPortland.com, where we have a whole article on this this week. Amazon Prime Day was this week, and uh, we've wrapped that up. And yes, one of the things you might have done was bought a new smart speaker. And something to be aware of is that your current smart speaker does have some access to your financial accounts. In the case of Amazon, you can order things, that kind of stuff with your voice. So if you just disconnect it and get rid of it, there could be a security problem. Now, there are some fail-safes built into it. Generally speaking, on official devices, and that's a big word because there's a lot of non-official Amazon devices out there, 
But generally speaking, when you hook it up to a new network, it will require you to log back in, that type of thing. But one of the other issues is, is when you get rid of an old smart speaker, it's locked to your account, and the person getting it secondhand can have problems connecting it if you don't release it. So the process to do that is called deactivation. And again, check out our Tech Wednesday blog. The exact step instructions are there to be able to do it. And it's something that's pretty easy and pretty straightforward. But just for your own security, it is a good idea to know what has access to your account and how to disconnect it. Is it safe to use public Wi-Fi? Yeah, and a question. Uh, on with us today, Bill Snodgrass. Bill, what is your opinion on public Wi-Fi? Uh, it depends, really. I mean, I've seen some places where I would never even take my cell phone on into because of people that are going to be there. Uh, I believe Chaz covered it. it was DEF CON. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> walk in there and use that Wi-Fi. Uh <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've never had issues with Starbucks. And of course, a lot of people are pushing VPN stuff, which I actually have my concerns about VPNs. But <laughs> yeah, and actually, that's a good topic to talk about, because this is something that's being advertised a lot more. And there's a fee for using them and stuff. A VPN is a virtual private network. And we'll get into that later. But uh, I think what you say is actually what it comes down to. It kind of depends on where you are and what you're doing. Um, the, the, the problem with public Wi-Fi is that other people can access it and it's not necessarily secure. And if someone knows what they're doing, they can see who else is on the network, possibly look at the traffic, that kind of thing. So you would want to avoid going to a website and putting in your bank password, that kind of thing, if you're on, on a public network. Now, most banking apps encrypt, so you probably don't have a problem. And this is better than it used to be, but it's still something just to be aware of. If you're on a public network, Watch what you do and don't do anything that uh, would expose passwords, financial data, that type of thing. Do I really need to eject my USB drive? This question has come up on a lot of the on-site clients I used to have and is a listener question this week. And a lot of people don't even know that this is a thing. But what it is, is if you have a USB device, I'll, just, I'll give the example for Windows 10. There's a similar process for the Mac. Is you right click on the device and there's an option called eject and you click on it and then it says it's safe to remove the drive. Now, once in a while, if you pull a USB flash drive out without ejecting it, it can create a power surge and burn out the drive. So that's what this option actually is for. It also makes sure that any files you're using are closed. If you have an open file, it'll tell you to save it first and that type of thing. So, well, that and it was for uh, old mechanical hard drives. Yes. Yeah. Back in, and in fact, that's an interesting thing, Bill, because now, you on Windows 10, you don't even have the eject option on a hard drive anymore. Really? Yeah, it's it's been disabled uh, by default. You only have it on USB, but you're absolutely right. Back in the days of the old mechanical hard drives, you would definitely want to eject the drive because it would spin down and cause all kinds of problems if you didn't. Oh, because yeah, I think I still have a mechanical one, and it allows me. I mean, it is a USB yeah. connection, of course, but yeah, the USB uh, external hard drives that was a lot of it. And I know there was for a while. There was some process, I think, that they used in Windows 7 to speed things up by using it as a secondary kind of uh, yes, memory absolutely. cache. It would cause issues. Yeah, yeah, and that, was, and that caused big issues because you could lose your cache file if the drive was unplugged wrong. Um, and then it had everything from Windows not starting to taking a really long time, too. So absolutely right. All right, this is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 
Got an exciting new device that we're going to get a little bit of a preview look at this week. We'll be reviewing it on next week's show, but we wanted to go ahead and talk about it. And that is a new VR headset called the Oculus Rift 2. Now, we've been, I'm sorry, the Oculus Quest 2 because the Oculus Rift was the old one. So the Oculus Quest 2 is a standalone headset that allows you to do VR functions without being tethered to a computer. So it's self-powered, has its own processor, all of that kind of stuff. And the Oculus Rift, which we did have, was a lot of fun, but you had a cable connecting you to a computer. You had to have a laptop or a desktop that was VR ready, which was quite expensive to buy and all of that kind of stuff. So this is supposed to remove that barrier to entry that a lot of people had with VR. Now, Bill, I'm going to start with you. Have you played with virtual reality at all? Uh, yeah, I think I used your Oculus Rift for a while. Okay, so you've seen that one. So you, so you've seen this. What do you think of it overall? Honestly, I like it. My problem is, is that I, and of course, I haven't really had a chance to tie too many, but I wear glasses and trying to find one that fits over my glasses or that, you know, well, just focuses correctly. Mm-hmm. When you have them with you don't have glasses is kind of a issue. I know yours on a few occasions gave me motion sickness yeah. just because of how it worked. But now, Gretchen, I, you and I have an addiction of a game called Beat Saber on this thing. Tell uh-huh. us a little bit about that. What do you want me to tell you? <laughs> what is the game for one thing, and why do you like it? Oh, okay. It's basically um, you're holding virtual lightsabers, and there's these weird shapes and things that come at you, and you're supposed to smack them the right way, and because it, it gives you instructions as to which direction and how. And then there's all, also a lot of really fun music that they play. Yep. And um, it's, it's like a really good workout. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's yeah. it's an odd combination of lightsabers and something like a, a version of Guitar Hero, although it's not a guitar, it's more like drums, but it's lightsabers. Oh, but, yeah. You know, it does it's almost a drumming feel yeah, to it. It's kind yeah. of, I think that's that's where it comes from. And yeah, it's good exercise. And that's another thing is you don't, you're not sedentary when using these type of things. Uh, you do move around. Now, Jeremy, you on classic video games, especially, uh, like Bill was saying, have a lot of problem with motion sickness and that type of thing in certain environments. What was your feeling on VR? Well, okay, when I first tried VR in the late, uh, God, I was at ninety three. Um, it was a big demonstration event at at the um, GSR. They had all these little areas set up, and it was you're standing in this little ring, and you had to shoot these, you know pixel graphic things you had a a gun in each hand and it was it was really uh like the beginnings of vr right because everything was everything was like straight lines and angles there was no no round forms at all and that was fun but the newer stuff every the backgrounds whip around so fast i get motion sick now are you talking about the vr or the or those sideways games i thought you got sick on the sideways i get if i'm if i'm playing a first person shooter the background whips around so fast it gives me gives me motion. Sickness. Okay, so I didn't I didn't know you were having problems with VR. So it's yeah. something to, interesting to think about because these are some of the things that you might deal with, you know, getting into these things. Now I'm willing to bet that a lot has changed in this technology. In fact, I know it has in 27 years. And it's interesting you bring up the 90s because that was also this the idea of VR isn't that new. There was a product called Virtual Boy mm-hmm. uh, that was supposed to be this that gave me an absolute headache to use for more oh, than about 30 oh, seconds. The Virtual Boy is known. For migraines. Yeah. Oh, you mean the red and black? The red and black. Yeah, and it was a Nintendo yeah, the red, product. Black and, oh, yeah. man. 
And it wasn't actually VR, really. It was no, it, it, it was not VR, but it was it was migraine inducing. So, it's, <laughs> it's weird. Great, great so if you want a migraine, get this product. I'm not sure that's the good marketing <laughs> campaign. Uh, not one you'd want. Um, <laughs> by Excedrin migraine. <laughs> but the, uh, the 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 new ones that are coming out now. PlayStation has a VR and has for a while, and the PlayStation Five is coming out. The one for the four is supposed to be backward compatible. Although I'm seeing rumors that there will be a higher resolution one. Uh, Bill, what you're talking about with the glasses, I noticed they have a kit for this for an additional $30 that allows oh, nice. you to have adjustment for glasses, which cool. probably is cool. we'll be able to get. And, uh, you know, so stuff like that's being taken into consideration. One of the other things I know on some of them, the the uh, uh, Oculus is made by Facebook, by the way, so there is a big company behind it. And one of the things I noticed on a lot of the early ones is you could see the edge of the range. So it should be about 180 degree uh, visual range. And if you can see out of that and see a black line, that, of course, destroys the illusion. And their products, uh, like the Vive, have been a lot better than that. It's there. This one's supposed to completely do away with it and give you the feeling of a 360-degree spear. So Mm -hmm. we're going to get these. We've got pre-releases coming, and next week we will be reviewing them on the show. Let us know what you think about VR. Like it? Hate it? Is it something you're going to be doing this holiday season? This is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. One of our listener questions has brought us to the idea of VPNs. And this is actually something that's come up in the past. You see these being marketed all the time. And really, what is it? Well, the initials stand for a virtual private network. And according to Norton, who's a manufacturer of this type of software, it gives you online privacy and anonymity by creating a private network from a public internet connections. VPNs mask your internet protocol or your IP address, so your actions are virtually untraceable. Most important, VPN services establish secure and encrypted connections to provide greater privacy than even a secured Wi-Fi hotspot. So this is something that you would use on top of your normal internet connection. Now, Bill, I know you've had some experiences with this, so I've just given the official explanation. What can you add? I personally don't use one, um, just for different reasons. But I know a lot of it like started way back in the day you were, you know, you watch the old movies where they're tracking and they're trying to trace someone that's going, you know, across the world. To, oh, well, now they're in China. Now they're in, you know, Mexico. Now they're this. The idea was that you uh, would basically bounce around a bunch of different places. And of course, VPNs like I believe NordVPN allows you to change your region or where you're supposedly your IP supposedly is, which allows you to access, you know, programming that wouldn't normally be available in your area. Um, a lot of it's good for countries like uh, China, where it's very isolated and the people can use them to access outside. Of course, I believe they are illegal in China. Um, yes, yeah. very much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but for the, you know, the average user here in America, it's a matter of trying to stay anonymous. Now, I know some of these got into trouble about a month back, or there's been some very big conjecture about it that while they're selling you anonymity, they may not be. And I, I tend to believe that too is the way that the internet tends to need to work. You know, you need to have at Mac addresses, IP addresses, things like that. So 
there's always going to be some record, you know, it's like Bitcoin there, there it's, it's might be really deep in there, but it's, you know, you can still track where it's come and gone from. Right. Right. So I thought it, this was originally like a, an old business thing. So where did this originally come from? Well, back in the day, uh, what you're talking about where this would have originated. And back when I worked for the bank, we had these in, uh, you know, what was that like 2000, 2001. It wasn't at that time something you would just buy like you can today. We, it was a special server and a spe- very specific setup. And what it was is so that you could work in a remote location. In the case of the bank, that would be another branch or something that was away from their primary server and still have a secured connection in between where you were and the actual server, the financial base at the bank. Okay. So that's where this type of thing kind of originated. But what's happened now is with the internet growing and that type of thing, you know, you're talking about things like Wi-Fi hotspots where you're out and you're on a public network and things aren't as secure. It's better than it once was, but you still have vulnerabilities. And every time you turn on the news, something's being hacked and someone's stealing passwords and all this kind of stuff. So a VPN can offer an additional layer from that standpoint to be able to encrypt the data from from where you are to wherever it's going on the web. Now, the one downside to that is it would have to de-encrypt at that web server and you have no control over that. And from what Bill was just saying is another very interesting thing, because I use this every so often to get into resources that I need to get into in Europe. So when I'm on a VPN, I'll actually, the ads will start coming up from Germany or something, because it thinks that's where I'm connected to the internet, because it's actually moved the uh, point of what's called the point of presence. But the downside or the nefarious use of this is to be able to do things online without your activity being traced, or at least to make it much harder to trace that may be illegal and stuff. So VPNs have become a big deal with things like pirated software, the dark web, all of that kind of stuff. And Bill, I agree with you completely. I think that there still is some embedded, uh, what we would call metadata, you know, but um, but it is definitely out there. Now, you said you don't use a VPN. Is there a time that you would think that you would want one? Personally, you know, if it was necessity to do it, um, I know a lot of people would use a VPN to do searches and things like that. And that's where we, of course, we get into that gray area of how much is your privacy versus how much is, you know, people wanting to do or get bad information for doing bad things in the world. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. For me personally, I use it if I do need to use it for, honestly, I really can't think of anything myself. Um, I guess connecting in on some things would be the reason why. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I always question that, like, if you're using a VPN to access your bank, then your bank's going to be like, well, why are you accessing it from Russia or something? <laughs> right. And they might actually lock yeah. you out for that because, yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's a, I know when traveling internationally, I have that problem just anyway sometimes. And, you know, and one of the other things to think about with this, too, is it also is an additional expense. Uh, these runs starting at about 10 bucks a month um, on up to more, you know, like 20 and somewhere in between there. So. You do have a cost associated with it. There are some free versions, but because they're controlling your network access, they can force things like commercials over it. So you may not be paying in cash, but you're paying in other ways. So, you know, that's something else to also think about. And plus knowing who the service provider is. Now, I would think if you're going with a company like Norton or somebody that's well-known and has a decent reputation, that's one thing. But if you're, you know, on Fred's Funny VPN and don't know what it is, um, it's... uh, so, you know, something to be careful of. <laughs> I, have a, I have a question for you because uh, this whole thing with the, uh, with the commercials, 
there were times when I would just like put a strange country. Like I used to have a Scandinavian city on my Facebook and I would get Scandinavian advertisement, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, was that a VPN? No, it wasn't a VPN in your case. So, see, they serve up commercials in a couple of different ways. The big way now is geolocation where it is based on where you are. So like when I'm in Oregon, I get an ad that Oregon is a terrible place to retire. Last week when I was in Nevada, I had the same ad, but it said Nevada is a horrible place to retire. And it's just basing it on your on your geolocation. Yeah. Okay. Now, sometimes yeah, my favorite, my favorite uh, what is it, hot singles in your area? And I'm like, no, I, where I live, no, I, I would know them. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> I know yeah, those, where you live. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, but those type of things, that's where, where that's coming from is geolocation. And the VPN can affect that to somewhere else. But what you're dealing with is what's called metadata. When you sign up for something, you're giving it a location and it's basing the ads on that and then returning it. So there's different ways of doing advertising. It's big money on the internet. So the big companies know how to do this and do it properly, but it comes from different things. This is user-friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. Great show this week. Love the questions. And boy, did we have a lot of good ones. You know, one we didn't fit into the segment that we do probably want to talk about is that Apple is announcing the new version of their iPhone. Uh, Pre-orders go on uh, sale for that next week. So it's definitely something to look at if you are an iPhone fan. The new iPhone has the ability to do 5G. We talked a little bit about that earlier. So you want to watch to make sure you get the network and everything that you want it to be. Because these are expensive investments. I mean, they have a cheaper model this year. The cheaper model's around 700 The good one's about 1200 Yeah, you know, I can remember when you went to the store and bought a phone that plugged into the wall for 12 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's, uh, <laughs> you know, so it's definitely something that they are an investment now. They do a lot. It's basically a pocket computer. But uh, something just to know about out there and and be able to deal with. On the Android end of it, too, for the holidays this year, they have a lot of new models coming out. Samsung's 20, uh, Galaxy 20. There's three different models of it. Now, one thing to be careful about on that one is the different models do different kinds of 5G. I would recommend the extra investment to get the one that does all of them. Uh, It's about $200 more. But in all cases, the Samsung, they have very good devices. I you know, other than them blowing up a few years ago, they've been pretty good. So um, (laughs) Yeah, with Samsung's we had were great. Yeah. So it's... uh, you know, again, you're looking at dropping a grand or more on the phone. The other thing that's interesting this year from them is the foldable screens. And their first shot at this didn't work very well. The thing worked for a little while and then it would start to break. But they have a new device, the Samsung Fold, as it's called now, that is able to do that. The screen itself is not flexible, but it has a hinge so you can close it. So when you open it up, you basically have a full tablet. And then it has a screen on the outside, so it also works like a smartphone. A little bit heavier. But if it's something you need, they do seem to have gotten a lot of the bugs worked out of it. But it also definitely plan on dropping on that one about $1,800 or more, depending on the options that you select. Wow. Phones are getting expensive. Yeah, phones are getting expensive. Buy a laptop. laptop. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'd rather have an Alienware. You're going to buy an Alienware for $1,800, but I mean, buy a decent laptop for $300. Yeah. Have you got an Alienware phone yet? Yeah, no, no Alienware phone yet. But, you know, it is an interesting thing to talk about that because 
again, I think looking at these devices, and there's so much selection now, you should buy based on what you need, not basically what is being marketed at the moment. If you don't need a fancy smartphone, you can get an Android phone for 80 bucks and it'll work just fine. You know, it's it's just a matter of dealing with that. And like you talk about the Alienware, now I use high-end computers. Bill, you use them too, and I know, Gretchen, you're thinking about them. Alienware, I can't recommend enough. I mean, but it is going to set you back two or $3,000 depending on the specs you get. And if you're somebody that's just going online to browse the web, send email, maybe check your bank account, you don't need all that horsepower. You can go with a Chromebook for it's a couple hundred dollars for a really good one or less and, and have what you need it to do. So it's just about doing the research and figuring it out. All right, we're on the next week's show. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Until next week, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2020, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. The views and opinions expressed in this show are those of the host and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting provided by wearetechnology.com. Podcast available at theanswerportland.com or userfriendlyshow.com.